it's that time again when we take two guys who think they know everything about science, place them in a bar and let them loose with a microphone. Welcome to the Beer Drinking Scientists. Let's hear what the boys are up to this month. Welcome to the Beer Drinking Scientist, episode one, where we've got past the embryonic stages of our development and we thought we'd actually get serious for once. I'm your host, Darren Osborne, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Mark West. How are you, Mark? I'm great, thanks, Darren. It's good to be doing this seriously, and it's good to be here to tackle a few more serious science topics over a couple of beers and have a good, relaxing time. Okay, well, what, the format of what we're going to do is um, we're going to pick a particular topic and we're going to discuss it at length. And then, with any luck, we might actually chat to a few punters here in the pub and uh, get their views on the particular topic. And, and in this podcast topic, we're going to be looking at climate change. We're going to have a bit of a discussion about what it is, uh, what do we know about it, what we don't know about it, and uh, where the future might lie. So I might uh, throw it to you, Mark, and uh, get your views, first of all, on what you think about climate change and, and you know, where we've come in the last couple of years. Climate change is a scientific issue that is very hard to escape in the media anyway, at least in Australia, with the drought and the water crisis. Climate change is something that is everywhere, and it's probably fair to say it's one of the major scientific issues confronting the world. Now, everyone's heard of global warming. Uh, John Howard recently denied it in Parliament, the Australian Prime Minister denied it in Parliament, and then retracted that. So there aren't many people that don't think that it's actually occurring. The Earth is four and a half billion years old and has gone through dramatic climate changes in the past are we in the middle of one at the moment is it just something that's naturally occurring or are we doing it to ourselves that's a very interesting question and i think it's 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 one that i suppose a lot of the skeptics have brought up over many many times ever since climate change has been a topic probably about for the last maybe 30 to 40 years since it first first became recognized now Let's have a look at some of the, the, the factors that, that cause climate change on our, on our Earth. Now, the first one, and probably the major one, is, is carbon dioxide levels, or CO2 levels. Now, the interesting thing is that over the past 600 million years, um, CO2 levels have varied anywhere between 200 parts per million and 5,000 parts per million. Now, the reason for that great variation, of course, is because the Earth has never been a constant machine. I mean, it has changed. We've had big volcanic periods. We've had... At- asteroids and comets slam into us, we've had plate tectonic movement and we've had life forms that have appeared and disappeared. So that, that, that's something that, that occurs on, on many occasions. Another thing to take into account is, is solar variation. I mean, the sun itself is not a very constant object and, and it changes all the time. And in fact, it goes through an 11-year cycle. If you look at the number of sunspots, for example, that occur on the, on the face of the sun, uh, it goes through a period of minimum, which we're in the middle of at the moment, and then a couple of years later we'll go through a maximum where there'll be quite a lot. Look like a young teenager, in fact. <laughs> Very spotty. Uh, but one interesting period in the time that's been recorded in the late 1600s to the early 1700s was there was a drop in the number of sunspots, and that corresponded with what was called a mini ice age, or the more de minimum. And so temperatures actually drop. So there's, there's two examples of where climate change can occur through very natural processes. Now, there are a number of gases that can be called greenhouse gases that cause this uh, effect. We've got CO2, which is man-made, which is formed in combustion. So you burn your fossil fuels, you burn your, your oil, your coal. It produces carbon dioxide. And this goes up into the atmosphere. Uh, other 
Other greenhouse gases include methane, and the worst of all is actually, surprisingly, water vapour. Now, global warming is caused, effectively, because the sun is a black body. It's a huge black body emitting electromagnetic ra radiation across all wavelengths on the spectrum. What happens is, it comes through, it hits the Earth, the Earth reflects it back as heat, and things like water, carbon dioxide, methane, don't let it, don't let it escape into the atmosphere. It's absorbed because of their chemical properties, and it's just re-radiated back down to Earth, like, a, like the way a greenhouse works. So the theory behind it is that we're pumping out a lot of CO2, a lot of methane, and other organic compounds into the atmosphere that are causing this greenhouse effect. They're re-radiating re heat back down to the Earth instead of letting it escape into the atmosphere. That's interesting, Mark, because, I mean, that's, that's one of the major um, ways in which humans, I suppose, have changed the atmosphere or, or, or changed the Earth in, in through the, the, I suppose, the expelling of, of greenhouse-type gases or greenhouse-effect gases. So you mentioned CO2, you mentioned uh, methane. Um, and also you mentioned water vapour. I mean, some of the other things that, that humans have done in the last couple of hundred years, of course, have pumped out things like aerosols, so things like dust, smoke, um, and just you know, other bits and pieces of, of rubbish that are just floating around in the air. So the interesting thing is, going back to the CO2, is that you heard me mention before that it's, it's gone anywhere from between 200 to 5,000 parts per million. I think the interesting thing is that humans were never around when it was 5,000 parts per million. And I think this is one of the interesting things about climate change. We talk about the climate that is, you know, has changed on the planet Earth over the last billion, you know, four and a half billions of years, but I think this is probably the first time that humans themselves have actually understood in the time that they've been here on this very short time on Earth that the climate is changing, and secondly, that they're affecting it. It's interesting the way they work out that there were 5,000 parts per million carbon dioxide particles in the atmosphere millions of years ago when humans weren't even here. They do this by looking at... Well, one way of doing this is by looking at uh, air that's trapped in ice down in Antarctica. They've been able to analyse um, air pockets trapped in ice uh, dating back to about uh, 600,000 years ago, I believe, at the moment. They're able to find out this sort of thing. Um, yeah, so this is about the first time in our history that we've uh, known that we are increasing CO2 levels and uh, that there might be a problem here. All right, so, I mean, we've just sort of briefly covered over, you know, some of the, the concepts there of global warming and, and, and whatnot. I mean, one of the interesting things is in the, in the last week or two, the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released a, their fourth report, their fourth report, um, looking into climate change and the effects of it. And, and they've stated in it that they are 95% confident that humans are the cause of climate change. So I think that's, that's pretty hard to refute that we are. But uh, they also start to look at the effects of climate change. Now, one of the interesting things you know, larger hurricanes. Now, Mark, you, you recently flew up to Townsville. You can tell us a little bit about your experience in, in what it's like in a sort of stormy, a stormy atmosphere. But also, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on, on some of those extreme weather events, such as hurricanes like uh, you know, Cyclone Larry or Hurricane Katrina. Well, yes, I did have the... Um the privilege of being stuck in uh, Cyclone Ravage Townsville the other week, Cyclone Nelson, and there was another low uh, tropical depression, I think, which didn't turn itself into a cyclone, but caused an awful lot of rain and a lot of wind, and in the end kept me in Townsville for an extra day, essentially, which was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> for listeners out there, there's a hint of sarcasm in Mark's voice there. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Uh, love Townsville Airport. Um, 
the, the thing about uh, I I don't probably don't know enough about the um, about the extreme uh, events uh, that have been occurring, which have been supposedly attributed to climate change, but. Um, we don't have a lot of data points for this. I think the comparison is something along the lines of 20-odd extreme uh, cyclonic events in the 1970s versus 30-odd in the 1990s. So two data points is hardly uh, a scientific way of measuring whether it's global warming that's doing all this stuff. It's certainly something to be aware of, especially with um, events such as Cyclone Katarina occurring off the coast of Brazil, the, the South Atlantic. Um, which is low is as low as uh, cyclones have been spotted before. So there are certainly rare events out there. But again, we haven't been recording these things for that long, and it's not like we can get this sort of information from air stuck in uh, ice in Antarctica. I think I think it's an interesting thing. I mean, a lot of scientists who are in this field have actually been uh, very very keen to to point out that, particularly with extreme weather events. What, exactly what you're saying. We don't have enough data points to be able to say, yes, these big hurricanes over the last couple of years or, uh, are, are, are the effects of climate change. I mean, you can only really uh, assess that in the future when you've got many more data points and you can look back and say, well, yes, there's a continuing trend. And, and I think that's something that's been happening with, with, with climate change across the board. I mean, you know, with rainfall and temperatures and so forth. Do you think that's why the public in in the past, have, and, and particularly those in the political arena, have been a bit sceptical about climate change? Yeah, I think it's probably it's one reason. I think people can be politically sceptical skeptical because it means that you don't have to sign up for the Kyoto Protocol, for instance, or you don't have to build yourself a recycled water treatment plant or... This is an Australian-centric viewpoint here, but that's possibly one reason why I've been a, a bit sceptical in, in Australia anyway. I think one of the things that, that uh, brought climate change into the public consciousness, particularly last year, was Al Gore's film, Inconvenient Truth. And there was one scene in that, or one thing that he said that, that really rang true with me, and I think probably with a lot of people who have seen it, and Mark, you will go out and see it after these beers, um, is he talks about the analogy of a frog put into a, a saucepan of hot water, and if you if you throw if you put a, a frog into a, a boiling pot of water, it will try to get out straight away. But if you put a, a frog in a pot of water at room temperature and then very slowly heat it up, the frog will not even move because it will just adjust to its surroundings until the point that it actually dies. And he he said that that's similar to humans and that. You know, we still haven't made any major changes. We haven't, because, you know, basically we haven't noticed it. Do you think that, that we could fall into the trap of continuing to think that everything is okay until it gets to a point where it's irreversible? Yeah, well, I think that's possibly true. I think humans tend to rely on our frontal lobes and the fact that we're conscious and, we can, and we're intelligent and we can, uh, you know, overcome pretty much everything we uh, come up against. But... Um, Maybe we won't be able to do that quick enough in this case if, if uh, global temperatures continue to rise so much. We're going to have a massive problem if all the ice sheets melt and everyone in the Pacific Islands is without a home and we're going to be overcrowded. Out of the IPCC report that came out last month, I mean, they've already said that if we stopped putting out CO2 and all, all the other um, rubbish that we're putting into the atmosphere... We're still locked in for a climate change of about two degrees increase. Now, that's double what we've had over the last two years. Do you think that that creates a sense of helplessness in the public? Well, that in, it, that in itself might not. 
Um, the problem is we might get a couple of degrees temperature increase, but we don't know what's going to happen then. That might be enough to melt the Siberian tundra, uh, release tons of methane that's trapped in there into the atmosphere and cause a runaway greenhouse effect. It might cause a lot of clouds that, that cool, uh, which might be a, a, a sink. It might sort of save the greenhouse effect. It might melt the Arctic ice sheets, um, stop the Gulf Stream keeping Western Europe warm and plunge it into, and plunge it into an ice age, as we saw in the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal film, The Day After Tomorrow. So we don't know what's going to happen. I guess if people knew, uh, knew this, uh, there might be a cause for helplessness. Mind you, a lot of people might like a couple of degrees increase. I mean, my winters get pretty cold. It would be kind of nice to have a bit more warmth. Well, it's funny you say that. I mean, there, there was an article a couple of years ago, well, a number of articles, in fact, in the Australian press that was based on a report from CSIRO, which, which looked at what, what the effects of climate change will be in Australia. And, and I think places such as um, Orange, Ballarat, um, and even Cooma thought it was actually a great idea because the temperatures were going to, to get warmer in their areas. But, I mean, seriously, it's, there, there are a number of problems that, that can occur if, if we're looking at temperature increases around the world. I mean, one thing, for example, is, is the Snowy Mountains. And this year, um, for the first time in, 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 I suppose, recorded history, the snow melted over the snow from the Snowy Mountains by, uh, by late September. I mean, that's, that's unprecedented. You were telling me earlier that um, just recently there's been enough um, ice sheet melting in Iceland to be able to grow uh, oat crops over there. Unprecedented stuff. I mean, that has its good bits, but naturally enough, you know, has its bad bits for those that are going to be out of home when the islands go underwater. Yeah, but, I mean, if we're talking about temperatures on average increasing, I mean, the difference between Brisbane and Sydney isn't that huge amount at the moment anyway. So let's say hypothetically that, that, that Brisbane now starts to have this... Or, sorry, Sydney now starts to have the same average temperatures as Brisbane. I mean, does that mean, for example, we're going to have cane toads running down Pitt Street? Or are we going to have dengue fever and malaria, you know, buzzing around Sydney? Well, that... Maybe. I don't know. I mean, the... The benefits that come from increasing you know, mild temperate places, increasing the temperature in temperate places like Sydney and Brisbane, are, you know, it's probably all much of a muchness really. You know, some colder places would like to get warmer. I think the problem with global warming is not in itself. It's not even really the temperature increase in itself. It's what it causes. It's, it's all these other effects and we don't know what's going to happen. I, th- I think the, the, the reality is that there's, there's like a tipping point somewhere, particularly with a lot of these systems. You mentioned the North Atlantic Current. Um, we, we talked about some of the Antarctic or Greenland ice sheets and so forth. I mean, when those things tip, that's when all the dramatic things start. And I, and I think the, the obvious thing is that scientists don't know at the moment when those actual tipping points, where they are and when they're going to occur. And another thing about all this is, though, is that we're... If, if it's happening, as you know, we're 95% sure it's happening, it's happening because we're burning fossil fuels, which are all going to run out. We're putting a lot of soot into the atmosphere, which is terribly bad for the environment and for our health. So, I, personally, I kind of think the real problem is the whole burning of fossil fuels. I mean, we're going to reach peak oil stage at one stage and have no oil very soon, possibly within 100 years or something like that. Okay, so now, now we're getting to the crux of the problem, particularly in this country, and, and that is the creation of, of, of greenhouse gases. You're the Prime Minister of Australia, and as of today, what's, what's, what's your policy in, 
in the creation of energy, knowing that that coal is the cheapest, most accessible source of energy in your country. Um, you know, what, what what would you do? I'll tell you an interesting story. I went down to Murrum Bateman the other the other week, which Murrum Bateman is just outside of Canberra, which is sort of southeast Australia. It's completely cleared land. There no trees there at all. There used to be, you know, whatever, eucalypt forest or whatever used to live down there. Completely cleared. The wind and the dust that flew through that place was absolutely amazing. Like the, you couldn't walk outside with just out getting buffeted. Yet the people in this area, it's a little bit of a bourgeois sort of wine-growing, cheese-eating area. And sorry to those of you who live in these areas, I quite love my wine and cheese, that's why I was there. But the people who were um, living there, there were signs up saying no to wind power because of the noise. And I just found that absolutely incredible. There were 100 kilometer winds screaming through these valleys, and there's protests against wind power. So if I was Prime Minister of Australia, I'd be using some of these... Um, you know, assets in inverted commas that we have and creating a bit of energy. Also, Australia's, you know, and what is what is it in the top ten countries by size in the on earth, like by landmass? Yet we only have twenty million people. There are vast areas where no one lives there. I mean, why not pave the interior with solar cells? Well, you know, not quite to that extent, but I I think Australia should be a world leader because we have the absolute you know, we have amazing resources to, to study. Um, solar energy and wind energy to name two um, and yet we're not world leaders in this and I think investment should be put into that uh, region well it certainly seems that we're in between a rock and a hard place probably a piece of coal and <laughs> and a lump of frozen carbon dioxide I'm not too sure but I mean I think what's what's evident over the last 12 months is that climate change and its associated effects have become um, much more in the public consciousness and I think uh, although it may not be any better understood by the public I, I certainly think that uh, people and politicians are going to discuss it more and uh, that's something that uh, maybe we should take to the streets and, and discuss with people what their thoughts are on climate change. Before we get up and talk to these people, what do you think about carbon sequestration and uh, coal burning, having like clean, filtered coal burning? How does that work for you? I know Sydney's built on coal and Australia is built on the, um, you know, the coal industry in a way and also the nuclear industry apparently we're going to be you know, exporting uranium. Wouldn't be in my top list of things but I think that's actually an interesting area to explore nuclear energy but anyway yes carbon sequestration what do you think I think there's a lot of unknowns in this area still <laughs> a lot of a, a huge number of unknowns and but you know I mean maybe maybe you know the scientists already understand it and we're not being it's that message is not being conveyed look the, the idea of carbon uh, carbon dioxide sequestration in case people don't know what it is is you essentially capture the CO2 before it goes into the air um, and then you liquefy it and then you pump it underground. Now, I mean, from what I've read, the concept is, is, is similar to the way, in fact, natural gas is, say, uh, trapped in, in, the, uh, in the earth and that's how we then extract it out. So obviously the natural gas has been sitting in there for thousands, maybe millions of years. So it, it would be quite reasonable to expect that you could do the same with carbon dioxide. What would happen if carbon dioxide escaped from those those areas? Not a nice thing to think about, really. I mean, you know, it could cause a lot more damage than, than say, I suppose, natural gas leaking out. But, I mean, you know, 
Yeah, I, I think it, I think it's one of those things that still needs, if not more scientific investigation, more communication, particularly not particularly to the public, for them to understand and accept that it's going to happen. I think the, the use of clean coal is something that certainly this country has to look at because if it is the cheapest form of energy at the moment then it's going to be very hard for this country to wean itself off it, and particularly with other countries. And if we're looking at countries such as India and China that are going to be using coal more and more because, let's face it, you can't deny these developing nations the same uh, energy sources that you use here in, here in this country or in the United States. So if, if we can come up with ways of reducing the impact from those uh, in this country and then export it and share that knowledge with other countries, then I think it can only be good for the rest of the world. Yeah, that's right. They build, what, one coal-fired power station in China every week or something ridiculous like that. Um, with, with the output of CO2 from there, yeah, really need to clean up their CO2 before we can, uh, you know, do anything about alternative energy sources. What we're going to do now is, is take it to the street or take it to the bar and let's see what, what the punters think and what their views are on climate change. What, what do you think Australia should do about climate change? The same as everybody else should do. It's, it's a global thing. I mean, if you look at what's happened in the last couple of weeks in London, you had massive storms that killed so many people with trees falling on their cars. In New York, they've got nine feet of snow in a day. Here, you've got, like, just insane floods like the, the mall crashing in it's a it's a worldwide thing everybody needs to do something not just australia does climate change worry you not really no nice warm winter for you yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're looking forward to warmer winters and uh, uh, slightly more sunblock i guess but that's about it do you think australia should sign kyoto i think they should sign it but i don't think there's many benefits in the long term for them doing it but i think they should jump on as america should i think they're waiting for america to, to jump on i feel they're following america in many many aspects so yeah, i think they should do you, do you think global warming is actually happening my opinion definitely i think it was happening about 10 12 years i think it's been happening since the 60s 60s 70s and i think when um al gore in the late 80s, 90s, pointed out to the governments. They knew then. I believe they knew then. And it's definitely happening as far as I'm concerned, yeah. Have you seen an inconvenient truth? I have. I've, I've done a lot of research and reading into, into it, and I've been a true follower of global change for, for a long time. And um, I think the last six months, the fact that governments have swung that issues to it was a theory, it was a maybe, it's clear even now if they're defining that it's it's happening they've gone from a maybe to a oh what should we do about it so they've skipped they'll think they've skipped a few steps of acknowledgement up into what should we do about it if you if you recite the stats then it's too late we've already pumped enough into the atmosphere it's gonna if we stop today and all and nothing went into the atmosphere there's 50 years of warming ahead of us so you know it's it's a unique benchmark in history we don't really know but my, my uh, sort of summary on the feeling of it is that it's, it's not not a good state and if you were Prime Minister today, what would you do to stop global warming? I think with today's society that you can't stop. You'd have to make like significant radical changes in the way that we live our lives in order to stop it. And people, I don't think, are willing to change. So I, I don't know that there isn't even a solution. So do you think this will be the end of our civilization because we'll just pull our heads into the sand? Um, I don't think it'll be the end, but at, at some point people will get it and... and 
who knows in the future, 50, 100 years from now, what civilization is going to be like. It might be very, very different. I think our children are going are gonna, to, you know, change quite a bit from the way we live our lives today. Do, do you ever want or worry that we're going to leave the planet in a worse state than what we inherited it? Probably. I'd imagine so. Yeah. I think people, maybe like people in, say, Australia and New Zealand are starting to think about it, but probably places like China and India are starting to get on the industrial bandwagon and they're probably, you know, it's going to take them a few years to really worry about emissions and all that sort of jazz because so. it's kind of a difficult thing isn't it like when, when you got India and China building like one power station a week exactly. you know, we can't really deny them what we've done what for we've the last done, hundred yeah. years yeah. exactly it's quite tough and the little bit of recycling that we do probably won't really compensate for like countries like that making nuclear power stations or other power stations to that extent but, yeah, but they should make it law though yeah, how can you do that? America will lay down the law, but they can't. So do you think there's hope? Oh, maybe, but not for quite a while. I think we will leave it in a worse state than we inherited it, for sure. Do you think Australia should sign the Kyoto Protocol? Yeah, I do. Why, why is that? Well, I think um, CO2 emissions are a big part of, uh, I guess, the cause of global warming and uh, we should seek to reduce them and I think a good way to do that is through carbon trading. Why, why do you think Australia is holding out? Because of our, our reliance on resources and manufacturing for our uh, GDP. Do, do you think the Australian public is, is, is slowly starting to, to understand what global warming is about? I think so. The last six months particularly the Australian public has been um, fed a lot more through the press and is becoming better informed. Do you hope or do you think that uh, we'll be leaving the planet in a better state than what we inherited it? No. Why is that? Well, we're, we're still going in the wrong direction. There's a lot. We're still increasing um, CO2 and, and a lot of other uh, harmful emissions. and It's going to take quite a lot of time to at least level that off, let alone reduce it. episode of the beer drinking scientists was produced by darren osborne for show notes visit the website at bds.podbean.com if you have any questions or suggestions for mark west or darren osborne send an email to beer drinking scientists at gmail.com i'm tilly Berlin. thanks for joining us